to all of you, and he's from North Leverett Baptist Church in Western Massachusetts, and uh, he comes here with his family today. I'll have, have him introduce his family, but um, uh, before we get to that, I think I need to dismiss the kids. So uh, it's kindergarten through third grade are dismissed for junior church. So uh, come on up, Mark, and uh, share from the Word of God. sad to see the kids go, (laughs) but I know it's good because I know they will be taught well. It is wonderful to be here with you this morning. It truly is. I'm not here by myself. As Scott says, I'm here with my wife, Gina, and this morning we uh, are joined by my son, Joshua, um, and his wife, Stephanie, and our daughter, Hannah. Our son, Caleb, is preaching this morning in another church, so he cannot be here with us, but he hopes to be here tonight for the potluck and the Q&A, so you get a chance to meet him. Uh, Thank you for welcoming me as well as you have done. Um, It truly is an honor and a privilege to be in your midst. Um, I uh, have gone around and I've asked people's names. Uh, Forgive me that after you mentioning me what your name is that I probably forget right away because my brain is... With names and faces, and uh, we've been here since Thursday, Uh, we've met a lot of people, we've uh, gone to some of the ministries that your church supports, has been a blessing, Um, uh, but it's a lot to take in, but that's okay. And so I hope that you feel free to come up to us and uh, introduce yourself, and I'm looking forward to um, a special day today and tomorrow. Uh, I'm very aware of the fact that this is a special Sunday morning. And that uh, me preaching here is part of the candidating process and that you will evaluate, as you should, me um, as a candidate and particularly in the area of preaching and teaching. And um, I know that you have been praying and I trust that you will continue to pray for God to show very clearly what his will is. And that's what we're doing. And we know and believe that if it is God's will for me to be your new lead pastor, that he will make that very clear to you and to us. And if that is not his will, then he make that clear too. And we will praise him, whatever the answer is, because we all want the same thing, and that is we want to know and obey the will of the Lord. Um, As I was contemplating this morning, um, I was also aware of the fact that my first and foremost responsibility this morning is to be a teacher of God's word. And so I prayed to the Lord and asked for him to guide me to a passage of scripture that he wanted me to share with you this morning. And so I invite you this morning to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3, 2 Timothy 3, and if you brought a Bible, um, either a physical copy or on an electronic device, please turn to it, and I appreciate it if you read along. Um, I often say after the scripture reading, thus ended the infallible part of the sermon, because the word of God is infallible, the preacher is not. And it's important for you to read along and to see what God says and to make sure that I will not say anything that contradicts the word of God. So let's read 2 Timothy 3, beginning in verse 10. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, 
my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the men of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Father, we come before you this morning asking for you to do what only you can do, and that is through your Holy Spirit apply this inerrant, powerful word of God to our hearts. We trust that you will do that. And we pray to that end in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Now I'm looking for my clicker. Here it is. So I'm sure that um, you are somewhat familiar with Paul's letter, second letter to Timothy, written by Paul uh, while he is in prison. He's in prison in Rome. We learned it from the first two chapters for preaching the gospel. And he believes that his death is near. He says that in chapter 4, verse 6. His desire is to see Timothy at least one more time in person. And so he requests Timothy to come soon to him. But he also realizes that uh, there's a good chance that he's not going to be able to see Timothy. So he writes this letter to him. It's a very personal letter. It's actually the most personal letter that Paul wrote in the entire New Testament. It also turns out to be his last letter. Now, we don't know this because Scripture tells us, but we know from ancient sources that shortly after Paul wrote this letter, he will be beheaded outside of Rome for being a follower of Christ and a preacher of the gospel. Paul and Timothy had a very close relationship. Paul speaks of Timothy as his true child in the faith, and it's probable that Paul was instrumental in leading Timothy to Christ. Timothy joined Paul on some of his missionary journeys. He also co-authored some of the letters that Paul wrote that we have in the New Testament. Paul is Timothy's hero. Paul is Timothy's example. So what we have here in this letter um, are a mentor's final words to a much-loved disciple. Um, if a man knows he is dying... He will not waste his breath on superficial things. You're not going to talk about the ball game last night and how it went and what the score was. You reserve your breath for that which really matters, that which you really want the person you're talking to to know. And that is how Paul's letter to Timothy is. The passage that I read to you, verses 10 through 17, can be summarized in two words. Paul's words to Timothy, summarized in two words, be different. Be different. Um, Don't blend in with the crowd. 
don't march to the beat of the same drum of the world, of false teachers, of those who pretend to know God but do not know him. Be different. And I get that from two phrases in this passage that Paul uses. The first one is in verse 10. He begins by saying, you, however, and then again in verse 14, he says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. Paul contrasts Timothy with people that he describes in chapter 3, verses 1 through 9, who love themselves, do not love God, who do not obey the word of God, but either alter it and or reject it. They do not believe the Bible is the word of God. And and Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, that is them. You, however, number one, live a godly life, unlike them who are lovers of self, not lovers of God. You live a godly life, verses 10 to 13. And number two, you make sure that you listen with a heart to obey to the word of God. Live a godly life and listen to the word of God. So these are my two main points this morning. And even though this letter was written by Paul to Timothy in a specific time, in a specific context, because it is in the Bible, and we know the Bible was, is also written for us and for our sake, this is God's word to us, his church as well. And we need this reminder And we need this encouragement. Because let's be honest, it is not hard for a believer to come to a place in his life or her life that he or she takes the Bible for granted. Or that we come to a place where we lose our excitement about following Jesus Christ. Just going through the motions. We need to be reminded that we need to be encouraged that the Word of God is powerful, essential, that it can change the hardest of hearts, and that it can change us from the inside out so that we will become more and more people made in the image of Christ. So be different. Paul's words to Timothy, God's word to us this morning. So let's look at verses 10 to 13, and first ask ourselves the question, who are the people that Paul desires Timothy to be distinct from? He says in verse 10, you, however, after just listing characteristics of those people, so who are those people? What are they like? Well, chapter 3, verses 1 through 9, give us character traits of Those who will live in the last days. Look at verse 1, but understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty for, and then there's a whole list of things. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, Swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power, you avoid such people. Now, when Paul says, in the last days, he's not 
just thinking somewhere in the distant future, some of these things were happening in Paul's days. In fact, the phrase, the last days, in the Bible, in the New Testament, is used to describe the period of time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. Hebrews 1, 2, for instance, makes that clear. But as we near the return of the Lord, the volume of some of these things that Paul already saw happening in his lifetime, but knew would increase, that volume is being turned up. Because I don't know about you, but when I read those verses that I just read to you in chapter 3, the first couple of verses of chapter 3, that is a very fitting description of our culture. That's where our world is, by and large, today. Look, for instance, at the word, verse 3, heartless. That word literally means without natural affection. And it talks about the kind of love that a parent has for a child and a child has for his or her parent, which is just natural. It's normal. That's how it ought to be. You don't need to teach a parent to love a child. The first time I laid eyes on that young man, who's 25 now, I loved him. Even before he was born. That's normal. That's natural. But Paul says, in the last days, people will be without that kind of natural infection. And isn't that true? As we look around today in our world. Another one he mentions in verse 4. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Countless of people delight in sin. Not in God. The statement, how could this be wrong when it feels so right, is maybe the most hurt statement in our culture today. Something that God forbids because it's wrong and harmful. How can it be wrong if it feels so right? We love our feelings and we love pleasure. Lovers of pleasure and not lovers of God. Hopping from one buzz to the next, ending up in destructive, sometimes even addictive cycles, and all those things that the world pursues do do not satisfy because the only thing that truly satisfies is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, you be different. You be different. They're all walking in this direction, and I'm reminding you and calling you to walk in the other direction, to live a godly life. Now, when Paul goes on, he motivates Timothy to live a godly life by pointing to his own life. So look how verse 10 continues. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. Remember, Timothy, you remember me, my teaching, my conduct, the way I engaged with opponents, the way I extended myself to people, the way I stayed faithful to the word of God. Now, Paul is not proud when he says that to Timothy, when he points to Timothy and says, look at me as a flesh and blood example of what a godly life looks like, he knows he's not perfect. In fact, he says in the first letter that he writes to Timothy, 
that he is the chief of sinners. He says, I am the chief of sinners, not I was the chief of sinners. And we would all agree he was persecutor of the church. But now as a believer, he still describes himself as the chief of sinners. He had a very accurate self-knowledge of his heart. That by nature does not follow God, but follow self and sin and pleasure. But he also knows that lessons in life are not only taught, they are also caught. And so as he says to Timothy, Timothy, in light of everything that is happening, you be different. If you need an example, look at me. Look at my teaching. Look at my conduct. Look at my purpose in life, my faith, my patience, my love, and my steadfastness. A good example is powerful. My dad was a preacher of the gospel for 50 years. I have heard thousands of messages. I've heard hundreds of times my dad say, you're a Christian, got to be in the word. You read it, and you study it, and you memorize it, and you love it, and you live it. So it's important that you begin the day, or if that doesn't work for you, that you find another time that you're in this book on a daily basis. I've heard him say that so many times. But the thing that I remember more than anything else is watching my dad early in the morning, sitting at the kitchen table with an open Bible. Example. Powerful. Paul knows that's how it works. So as a motivator to live a life that is distinct from those who do not believe, who do not accept the word of God, he points to his own life. A good example. There's one more thing he mentions that is probably the hardest thing for us to swallow. And that is living a godly life, going in the opposite direction, will lead to suffering. So look at how he continues in verse 11. After he's talked about his love and his steadfastness, he says, you followed my persecutions and my sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. So what happened in those cities. Well, you go back to Acts 13 and 14, you'll find out that Paul was expelled from Antioch. Iconium, he fled because they attempted to stone him. When he got to Lystra, they actually did stone him for preaching the gospel, dragged him out of the city, and left him for dead. They thought they killed him. And so Paul, when he talks to Timothy and says, follow me, Flesh and blood example, to be different, he mentions his persecutions and his sufferings. And we're tempted to say, well, that was Paul. You know, Paul was an apostle. Once you become an apostle, you sign up for suffering. You have chosen a different vocation, Paul. You asked for it. But notice how he continues in verse 13. He goes from the personal to the general. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Meaning, paying a price for following the Lord Jesus Christ is the norm, not the exception. 
He says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not maybe, will be. The problem we have with a verse like this is that we know this is a reality for brothers and sisters in Christ that live in North Korea, China, Syria, Iraq. But we don't necessarily experience the gravity of this truth. And the reason is that in the Western world, freedom of religion has been unprecedented in both its scope, meaning in what we can do, and its length. For hundreds of years now, we can worship freely. That is, when you look in church history, unusual. Suffering for the name of Jesus, dealing with opposition, is the norm, not the exception. It has been the other way around for us here. It's been a blessing, but I also submit to you that it's been in some ways also a curse. That's why the church at large is lukewarm and very materialistic. To the point that sometimes it doesn't even seem there's a difference between those who are followers of Christ and those who are not. It doesn't cost you much to be a Christian living in a free country. However, that's changing. It is changing rapidly. Let's say a realtor who owned his own business 20 years ago was a member of a church, would attend, would be active in the church. That will be an asset to this individual. Because that's what you do as an upstanding citizen. That is something that is admired. That is the right thing to do to go to church. Nowadays, if that same individual attends a Bible-believing, Christ-exalting church that preaches the gospel, that stands for truth, stands for what is right, I submit to you, him being part of that church, active part of the church, is not an asset, it's a liability. And he's probably going to pay for it, somewhere, somehow. You want to live a godly life in this culture, in this world, if you want to stand for what is right, you're going to have to accept there will be a growing group of people that will not only disagree with you, but will not tolerate where you stand for. And it will hurt you. Maybe in a family setting, where, where there's separation between you and loved ones, not because you are unkind but because you, you cannot agree with what they agree. Or maybe it will hurt your business. That's the world in which we live. The first form that I filled out to apply for the position of lead pastor here at Garden Chapel was an online questionnaire. I don't know if any of you, other than the elders, have ever seen it. Question number one was this, and I quote, Are you willing to stand on the truths of the Bible regardless personal cost and or public opinion? A very in-your-face but very appropriate question. You know what? That question was asked of me, but God asked the same question of you and all of us. Are we willing to live a godly life 
and accept the consequences of what that means. I'm not trying to scare you. I don't know how soon opposition will morph into persecution-like actions. It may be three years, it may be five years, it may be ten years, but I think we would all agree something is happening. Do we stand for the truth of God's word? Do we live a godly life? Now, obviously, we are not to invite suffering. The message of the cross is offensive to people. We should not be offensive. Suffering, however, and opposition is inevitable. And that is right here in Scripture. Not small print, not something you find out later. It's right here because God wants us to know this is how it works. Suffering is a gift in God's economy. It brings us closer to the Lord because we need him. It pulls us closer to one another because we need each other as we walk through this phase of life. And sometimes God uses suffering to draw those who do not believe in Christ to himself because they do not understand how we can think what we think, stand for what we stand for, suffer the consequences. What is it about that God? What is it about that Christ? What is it about the word of God that you're willing to suffer? And what an opportunity for us to tell them the love of God and the truth of his word. Timothy, church, live a godly life. Be different. When Paul goes on, he speaks beginning in verse 14. I'll I'll read verse 13 as well. That the way we can do that is by listening to and submitting to over and over again the word of God. So look at verse 13. After he's made this general statement about all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. While evil people, verse 13, and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you... Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. So they're evil people. They're imposters. And they're moving in this direction. And they go from bad to worse. I want you to move in the opposite direction. I want you to continue in what you have learned and what you have firmly believed. Now, what is it that he has learned? Well, if you read on, he talks about the sacred writings. And then when you read on, you get to verse 16, he talks about all scripture. So what Timothy has learned, he has learned from the Old Testament scriptures, for him, for us, the word of God, the sacred writings. Timothy, do not back down from it. Timothy, do not turn your back on it. Continue in it. Remain faithful to it. It is absolutely necessary because there are evil people and there are imposters. That's an interesting world, an interesting word. It refers to false teachers that throughout the pastoral epistles, Paul warns against those who are outside the church, and those who've made their way in the church who are teaching things that are contrary to the Bible. They're in the ministry, quote-unquote, but they're there with wrong motives, and they teach falsehood. 
It was the case in Paul's days. It is the case today. Always been the case. Why? People, by nature, do not tolerate the truth. Do not like to be told what to do and what is true. We like to figure it out ourselves. Look at what Paul says in chapter 4, verse 3. I mean, it's such an apt description of our days. The time is coming when people will not endure sound, healthy teaching, but having itchy ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. In other words, these teachers, false teachers, will tell people what they want to hear. And that's why they're popular. If you get up, get in the pulpit, be a very charismatic person, wear a shiny purple jacket, and you tell everyone in the congregation, it is God's will for you to be healthy and to be wealthy. It's not hard to fill a church that way at all. People come in droves because that's what they want to hear. They don't want to hear that they're sinners. They don't want to hear about judgment. They don't want to hear that God is holy. So they will leave all of that stuff out. You will not hear a prosperity gospel preacher preach about suffering because that doesn't fit. That's not healthy and wealthy. So Paul says to Timothy, that kind of teaching from those imposters is not only wrong, it is also dangerous. So you, please, my son of the faith, preacher of the word of God, pastor of the church in Ephesus, you continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. You don't have to come up with something new. It just boggles the mind how sometimes preachers and teachers will say, I'm going to tell you something that you probably have never heard before. If you hear anyone say that to you, you be cautious unless you know the source, which we'll talk about in a minute. People come up with all kinds of insights and all kinds of things that were never discovered in the scriptures as if the Holy Spirit was sleeping for 2,000 years and we just missed all of that. And Paul is so burdened for Timothy and for his ministry that he says, you just stick to the Bible. And you continue in that, unlike so many other people. Now, after he said that, and interestingly enough, that is the only command in the entire passage, but as for you, continue what you have learned and have firmly believed, he backs it up with five, at least five statements. Why? Timothy should listen to the word of God and why he should not depart from it. And again, even though these are Paul's words to Timothy, they are God's words to us. And so I hope and pray as we'll go through it, and we'll go through it fast, so faster your seatbelts, that you will see the incredible value and necessity of reading and loving and treasuring God's word. So here's number one. Look at your teachers. So look again in verse 14. But as for you, continue what you have learned and have firmly believed. Here's reason number one. Knowing from whom you learned it. Now who are the whom? It's plural. Well, in all likelihood, because he continues to talk about Timothy's childhood, it refers to Timothy's grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice, of whom we read in chapter 1, verse 5, who were faithful followers of Christ. 
What an incredible legacy. So let me say something to you parents and grandparents. You have an incredible platform to influence your children and your grandchildren. How do you want to be remembered? You want to be remembered as the fun grandma? That's cool. You want to be remembered as the father that could tell jokes? A good joke every now and then. It's great. Do you want to be remembered as mother, father, grandfather, grandmother, who taught the Bible by precept and by example? That ought to be your legacy. Paul says, look at your teachers. When he says that, he doesn't mean that the authority lies in the messenger. It lies in the word. But character, a teacher's character counts for something. It either adds or detracts from the credibility of the message. If you hear me preach, and then after the service is over, you see me berate my wife or my children... You're going to have a problem with that, and rightly so. And if you would not know better, you would question, what is it that I just said? Your life does not match what you preach. So what does it say about what you're preaching and what is in this book? If a church, to use another example, has a pastor who faithfully teaches the Bible and supplements that teaching by not a perfect life. Don't expect your pastor to be perfect. You're going to be utterly disappointed. But a life of spiritual maturity as a caring shepherd, as I, by the way, believe you have had for over 30 years, you are blessed. Look at your teachers and look at their character. Reason number two, the Bible is a holy book. Paul says, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation. Sacred writings simply means that the Bible is a holy book. Now, we don't worship paper, cover, letters, ink, But we recognize that this is God's word, that it's set apart, unique, from any other book, religious, non-religious, in this world. It is as holy as God is holy, and therefore it deserves our uttermost respect and our allegiance. This is God's word. This is God's revelation, and therefore sacred, set apart. Now, if you come to our house and you see my wife's Bible, I can guarantee you there will not be any object placed on top of her Bible. No mail, no teacup, not a thing. Is that because she worships the letters? No. It's because of this very thing, sacred writings. So therefore, Timothy, therefore, Garden Chapel, it doesn't matter where the culture goes. Live a godly life in the power of the Holy Spirit, in submission to the word of God. You continue in it, what you firmly believed, because the word of God is sacred. 
He goes on and he says, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The Bible tells us how to be saved. Now, I don't know you. Uh, some of you have just gotten to know you. I've gotten to know just a little bit. And, uh, and I've enjoyed that. But I don't know you. I don't know where you're at. I don't know where you're at in your relationship with the Lord. I don't know if you come to church but not truly know Christ in a saving way. But I'll tell you one thing. There is no way you will be saved without this book. Now, Paul makes it very clear salvation comes through faith in Christ Jesus. But how do you know about Christ Jesus? How do you know that you're a sinner, separated from God for all eternity, under the wrath of God? How do you know that God loved this world, that he sent his son Jesus into this world? How do you know that if you repent of your sin and turn to Christ as your only hope for salvation, you shall be saved? How do you know that? Well, because someone told me. Well, where do you get that information from? Right here. So why, Timothy, why, O church, would you jettison or ignore the book that has led you to Christ? It just makes no sense. Isn't it amazing that we have the word of God at our fingertips, free access to it? I'm sure you know that over the course of history, men and women have died to preserve under God's sovereignty for us to have the word of God, the very words of Almighty God. Why don't we love it more, read it more, meditate on it more, study it more when it is God's word? The Bible is inspired by God. That's the fourth reason that Paul gives, all scripture is breathed out by God. This is a well-known verse. A lot here. We don't have the time to talk about it. Um, But I want to point out to you the fact that God makes it very clear that the author of the Bible is himself. He supernaturally guided the human writers, about 40 of them, They were using their own style, their own vocabulary, their own personality. But he guided them through his Holy Spirit in such a distinct way, without them being robots, that in the end, what they wrote was the exact words that God wanted them to write. Inspired. Breathed out by God. And because God is the author, it does not contain any mistakes, It is absolutely trustworthy on anything that it addresses, from geography to doctrine, from personal life to history, because it is bearing the mark of God himself, and therefore authoritative and absolutely reliable. You know, in this day and age, you don't know who to trust. You go buy something, and the salesman says, this and that, and it's wonderful, and you're like, do you trust him or not? You never have to feel the way about God. You never turning to the word thinking, now let me make sure, maybe that's not what he means. Maybe there's maybe there's like a an ulterior motive to this. Never, ever. 
It's God's word, inspired and therefore inerrant. The last one, the Bible is absolutely indispensable for spiritual growth. So I'm going to skip the how-tos the Bible work in producing change. That's verse 16, teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness. I don't have the time to talk about that. Look at verse 17. This is the purpose of the Bible. This is a purpose statement. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. And then it comes, verse 17, that the man of God may be complete, meaning mature, equipped for every good work. The purpose of the Bible is not big heads, lots of knowledge. Important, that's where it starts. But that is a means to an end. The end is transformed life. And Paul says to Timothy, you continue what you've learned and firmly believed, and one of the reasons is you need it. You can't live without it. It's like air. If you want to be mature, if you want to be equipped for every good work, you're going to have to spend time in the Word. You want to be a godly mom? This is what you need. You want to battle temptation? This is what you're going to have to turn to. Struggling with anxiety or depression or any other mental, emotional kind of struggle? This is where you start. This is where you end. This is the truth. And when the word of God is applied in the power of the Holy Spirit, it will teach you, it will change you, it will enable you, it will equip you for every single thing that you need. Now, I didn't say that. God said it. So, don't trust me. Trust God. Equipped for every good work. If you like to grill, like I do, I'm not very good at it, but my wife's very gracious and patient. We have stories about me burning stuff and everything like that. But I've gotten better over, over the years. When I want to grill a nice piece of chicken, I, the day before, I'll marinate it. And I'll just get this little bowl out, and I'll soak the meat in sauce, put it in the fridge. And then the next day, throw it on the grill, and just perfect. Now, it's kind of like that in a spiritual sense. God desires us to be marinated in his word, to be so soaked in it that it just takes possession of every nook and cranny of our being, that we start to think his thoughts after him, that it changes our attitudes, that it changes our words, that it even impacts our feelings and emotions. That's what I want. I want a pursuit to become marinated in the word of God. And I hope that you are as well. You know, in a few months or in the near future, there is going to be a new pastor in this pulpit. That's the trajectory that you are on as a church. And uh, I may be the person. If so, praise God. If God has someone else in mind, we praise him because we only want to do what he wants to do. But someone else will take this pulpit, and that person will be very different than Pastor Paul. He'll have a different voice, different mannerisms, different style. Um, a lot will be different. But you can be rest assured of one thing. One thing that remains the same is the Word of God. 
I love what Isaiah 40 says, the grass withers, the flowers fail, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. That is what you should want as a church. So let me tie this all together real quick with two quick applications as I close. The first one is this, and this is not a phrase that I came up with. I'm not clever enough, but I think it is really good. Be a winsome weirdo. So we talk about being different, right? Live a godly life, so you go against culture. Live a lifestyle that is in submission to the word of God, unlike those who change and reject God's word. Be a winsome weirdo simply means that, number one, it acknowledges the fact that you and I are aliens and sojourners in this world. If the Negro spiritual says, this world is not my home, just passing through. So if you don't always fit in, that's a good sign. If you feel you do fit in, that's a reason for concern. So we are people that if we do live godly, if we believe what the Bible teaches, we are going to look weird in the eyes of many people. And guess what? That's okay. That's okay. But we want to be a winsome weirdo. We want to love our neighbors, love our enemy. We want to serve in such a way that there is something about our lives that even though they reject the God whom we love, they cannot reject that there is something about us that is different, winsome draws, shining as bright lights in the midst of a broken and a crooked world. There is so much brokenness in this world. And God does not desire his church to just gather on Sunday morning, huddle together, enjoy the fellowship, drink our coffee, have a a good time together. That's crucial, important. But as one author once says, on Sunday we gather in order that the rest of the week we scatter and we are salt and light in this world. So be a winsome weirdo. And then finally, have a holy desperation because you know what? There is absolutely no way that we can live the way God has called us to live, godly life, submission to the word of God in our own strength. You try to do it, you'll fail. You get utterly frustrated. Because we don't have the willpower, we don't have the human capacity, because what God asks is impossible without the work of the Holy Spirit in our heart, whom he has given, who resides with us. And so what we ought to do as we seek out to be a winsome weirdo, we want to live godly, submit to God's word, we need to have this kind of holy desperation that says, oh God, help me. You know, that's the best prayer that you can pray. Even if you reduce it to one word, help. I say that a lot because I need a lot of help. Help. A holy desperation that acknowledges that we cannot do what we're called to do without God's help, without making use of the means that he has given us, his word, his spirit, prayer, fellow believers with whom we can be vulnerable and say, will you pray for me? This is where I'm struggling. I need you. I need God, and I need you to support me in this. But you won't get there if you don't have that holy desperation. You know, many things in life we don't do 
even though we're not, we know they're good to do because we don't want them enough. You know, we say, like, oh, I got a diet. It's important. It's good for my health. We're not desperate enough. And my dad suffered a heart attack in 2001. Up until the time, he talked all about losing weight, losing weight, losing weight. Then he had a heart attack, quadruple bypass surgery. Guess what? My dad lost weight like crazy. That was a holy desperation. That is how God desires us to be. To say, oh God, I can't do this. But you can. So please, as I read your word, as I fellowship, help me. And he will. So let's pray. Father, we come to you as a needy people. But we also know that you 